This is Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Each month, we interview experts in the field, discuss the data, and explore all facets of the housing market. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or a seasoned real estate professional, you will benefit from our insightful conversations and gain property intelligence as we discover more about the key issues shaping our industry. Now here's our host, Jason Mercer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ready to Real Estate. I'm your host, Jason Mercer, TREB's Chief Market Analyst. Earlier this year, Olivia Chow was elected as the 66th Mayor of Toronto. To discuss what Toronto residents can expect to see from the new Mayor and Council, I'm joined today by Steve Adler, Mike Layton, and May Warren. Steve Adler is the Senior Director of Public Affairs for National Public Relations. He boasts over two decades of experience working with both provincial and municipal governments. Mike Layton is the Chief Sustainability Officer at York University. He is a strong advocate of climate action and equality with extensive experience leading change in public policy. May Warren is a reporter on the Toronto Star's housing team. She is the winner of three Ontario Newspaper Awards. I'd like to welcome all of you to the podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing each of your perspectives on the emerging next chapter for our city. Before we begin, begin, I wanted to share that we have multiple topics to cover. Uh, I want to also allow each participant equal time to address the issue. So we'll try to keep answers to about one minute, at least initially, and we can always circle back to hone in on issues as, as the case may be. So with that said, let's jump right in. And let's recap first what proved to be a very exciting mayoral race. I'd like each of you to share your thoughts regarding voter turnout and the top aspects that different candidates within the, the, the campaigns dealt with that intrigue you the most. Uh, maybe I'll start off with May. Sure, yeah, and thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Um, yeah, I think it was a really interesting election to watch. And as we know, there were many, many candidates, um, which made it quite interesting, um, all in the race. Um, and maybe as a result of that, we saw actually a better turnout than in the, the last municipal election. Um, I think it was about 40 percent, um, or that's at least what was reported shortly after. So um, it's a lot better than the 30% of eligible voters that had cast a ballot um, in the election where Don Tory was reelected um, in the fall. So that's kind of encouraging. Um, I thought it was interesting that there were so many candidates, but then in the end, some of the higher profile ones um, didn't end up doing well, even though there were, you know, some that had been around for a while and a couple of, you know, city councillors. Um, but in the end, um, it really... Um, ended up being more of like a one or two person race. So that was super interesting, but energizing at least to see the turnout was better for sure. What are your thoughts, Mike? What what sort of intrigued you the most about the, the mayoral campaign? Well, first of all, Jason, thanks for thanks for having me on today. Um, you, you know, it was a really interesting campaign for both personal and, 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 uh, and, and professional reasons. Uh, um, having just left council and, and for one of those reasons was like I didn't see us moving at the pace of change that I wanted to see on the climate file. Uh, and now, uh, just within a couple of months, we've actually seen a significant steps forward in direction in, in that direction that um, that that weren't even on the radar uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, you know, I, I similar similarly to to May, I, I was a little surprised at uh, at the performance of some of the more high profile candidates. Um, but where I was um, 
perhaps uh, a little encouraged was two things. One, it was a rejection of the business as usual, uh, which we actually uh, like saw going into the uh, the general election that that the the mayor uh, uh, mayor Tory was going to get a third term without much of a challenge, and there didn't seem to be much of an appetite uh, amongst the the electorate at that moment in time for a change in direction. Um, but uh, but I think the results, given given the that the mayor Tory had put his support behind. Uh, another, uh, one other candidate, at least, because because uh, several of his core team were running, um, but that uh, it was an outright rejection of that business as, as usual. And then, like further to that, on the other, f- further off the right hand side of the spectrum, it was also a, a, a rejection of the politics of division. You had candidates out there deliberately trying to pin road users against one another, and homeowners against renters, and people in tall buildings. Uh, and and generally speaking, that was rejected by. I, I actually think that second part, the the rejection of the politics of division, was rejected uh, handedly by the city of Toronto, uh, who instead embraced some change on uh, in in the city. I think it's a really interesting point that the the lack of a, an incumbent candidate, um, you know, sparked maybe a lot more debate and a lot more um, than interest in the in, in the election. Steve, what are your thoughts? Well, Jason, thank you for having me. And May and Mike, it's great to be on the panel with you today. I think the election started off as who was going to throw their hat in the ring. And when Olivia Chow's name really started percolating towards the top, it was more than just name recognition. It was her race to lose. And I say that because I think one of the biggest winners of the election was Progress Toronto. They were eight, they showed last November what or how to organize a municipal race is getting, I want to say, six or seven new can, uh, councillors elected on the left side of the aisle. And they just exploded across the city. Um, I don't have the results in front of me, but I believe the mayor won, if not every ward, almost every ward across the city. And so the idea of a front runner being a front runner because of name recognition was quickly shot down to policy doing things differently and actually caring. I'm not saying the former mayor didn't care. I'm saying Mayor Chow Kama comes across. She is someone who cares. She is someone who listens and she tries to do the right thing. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, you never feel belittled if an, if an opinion or a stance on an opposite side from you is taken. I've had the opportunity to work with her when she was an MP, when she was a school trustee, and now that she's the mayor, and that has never changed. We may not always agree, but we're always civil and friendly, and I think that was the biggest winner in the election. I hope it keeps going forward, which was a return to civility and a return to caring. I think that's a really nice segue, Steve, and it, 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 to my next question where, you know, uh, Olivia Chow, Mayor Chow, coming out of the gates, it's early days, but I mean, she's enjoying an impressive approval rating. I mean, Liaz- Liaison Strategies uh, just released a poll and her approval rating is at 73%. Uh, so, you know, to all three of you, what do you believe are the most impactful steps that she's taken, I guess, both during the campaign, but then also uh, um, out of the gates? And, and Mike, maybe I'll turn to you first. Well, I think right out of the gate, everyone expected her to go in and start uh, and, and start, I think, demonstrating that there wasn't a there wasn't a space for other people's voices. And I think she did. She showed the exact opposite. Like people people were expecting her to come in 
uh, fire all the chairs and and immediately start really shaking things up. And and the approach she took was to legitimately go in and have conversations with councillors about what they wanted to accomplish. Sure, you're not going to see um, so, some of the the Stephen Holidays of the world on on the executive committee. No one expected that 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 the earth would would shake in that way. Uh, but at the same time, like you saw some of the the, the folks that weren't uh, that were endor had endorsed other candidates or perhaps even were other candidates uh, were, were brought in to at least maintain either maintain a role or um, take on a more take on a, a significant role and 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 given um, given a place for them to thrive on the issues that they're that are important to them. I don't think people expected that that, that approach. I certainly did, given my uh, uh, the, the the connection, uh, the personal connection I have with her. I know that her approach is about building big tents. It's about building a coalition because that's how you get stuff stick handled through other levels of government. Um, but I would say I think that that was that that was the big surprise that people got. Um, it was a, an approach that wasn't exactly the same as our, our previous mayor. The mayor. The previous mayor always put me on the committees I I, I liked, which I'm thankful for, but that, that wasn't shared by all my colleagues, um, some of which were put on committees that, that, that frankly they had little interest in, and they would have preferred to have been their expertise lied in other areas. And so I, I think people appreciated that, both councillors, but then also the, the city of Toronto, because we want councillors, no matter what part of the political spectrum, to bring their A game and be interested in the work that they're doing. And I think she provided that platform for it. So Steve, I mean, Mike described a, a, an early collaborative approach that that seems to have borne fruit. What are your thoughts? I agree, and I mean, I, winning campaigns are easy, and I don't mean that flippantly. You have a team around you. You work really hard. You can win a campaign. You can lose. But then the job of governing begins, and the transition from candidate to mayor-elect, to mayor, we saw on election night. We saw that transition. I was not at any of the victory parties or the victory party or the other parties, but I saw watching on TV the speech going from candidate to mayor-elect. Um, I think that one of the things that could be the reason for the high popularity is we've actually seen some results. Uh, we were all I hope I can say we were all Torontonians disgusted that we have refugees sleeping on the streets. The mayor was able to negotiate something with the prime minister and the premier. We can argue whether it wasn't enough, but a deal was made and that deal doesn't happen and, and some money doesn't flow without the mayor rolling up her sleeves and going ahead and starting the fight. The revenue tools uh, report, staff report comes out, and very quickly after assuming office, we have a special council meeting and executive committee meeting to discuss it. There was no waiting seven months for it. So I think we're seeing numbers reflect in actually doing some work. But here's the caution as I see it. A lot of groups who support the mayor are on the left end of the spectrum and I hope they understand that with some big issues it takes a bit of time to implement change and so anyone who expects uh, police accountability and reformation of the police services overnight it doesn't move that quickly and so her uh, the mayor's other challenge will be keeping her base of support happy and confident as it takes time to implement policies programs that she campaigned on and that the city of toronto wants 
So May, we've, we've talked about, you know, collaboration across council, but also collaboration between different levels of government and, and, and different agencies. From your perspective as a reporter that's, you know, covered City Hall, that's covered housing issues, uh, what jumped out at you from the from the early days of, of, uh, of this administration? Well, I do think there are a few things that she's done that have kind of signaled, um, I think, as Mike was saying earlier, just um, wanting to do things differently, like a different approach. Um, she even mentioned the special council meeting and the revenue tools. She also announced a housing plan and, and wanting to get back into the business of, of building rental housing. Um, so those kinds of things are, are really different from what we've seen in previous administrations. And there was, um, you know, talk of different revenue tools, but you know, not actually um, deciding on anything and kind of going back and forth a little bit. So I think that's just a signaling a shift a little bit of wanting to do something in a different way. And um, maybe that's kind of resonating with people. I think it is early, so maybe it is a bit of a honeymoon period in terms of the approval ratings, but it'll be really interesting to see um, kind of how it all shakes up. I think certainly top of mind is for any politician in Canada, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, local levels of government, the provinces or, 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 or the feds is, is housing. And I want to, you know, narrow the scope a little bit and obviously talk about uh, what's important at Trev and, and, and that's housing and housing affordability and, and, and housing supply. And leading up to the, the election, um, we had had a podcast, you know, talking about um, housing issues and other issues that were going to uh, be impacted during the, uh, the, the campaign. And obviously, you know, we're seeing very strong population growth we're seeing a tight supply of housing the overall cost of living is going up due to inflation and then obviously the resulting um, interest rate hikes um, so I guess to, to all of you and, and and Steve maybe I'll start with you um, you know what do you think the approach ought to be I guess broadly first in, in dealing with the affordability crisis that, that surrounds housing I guess just you know household balance sheets more more generally where where can the city and and, and the new administration sort of fit in there I think we have to recognize that the city can implement some policies, but they can't solve the problems alone. Uh, interest rates are federal jurisdiction. There are there are many issues that the city just doesn't have control over to try to solve the problem. I think, though, that what we might be able to see is a new way of doing things. The city has land. The city has the expertise and the know-how. And yes, they have some development and planning tools. And working with the federal government and the provincial government to try to do new things to solve the problem. We don't need another study. It seems every government comes in and they have a blue ribbon panel or a task force report. We don't need to study what projects could work or may not work anymore. I think what I'm hoping this mayor will do and, and council will do is maybe cherry pick some of the examples up from different reports and then go out and start doing them. Um, it, I don't have the silver bullet answer of if the mayor does X, affordability will come down. The task is huge. The problem is great. And the resources are limited to fix it. We're not going to get 100,000 units overnight to solve a problem that way. Um, but I'm confident in her ability, uh, sorry, the mayor's ability to, to work with the prime minister and the premier on the refugee issue to now start working on this to make some concrete steps and some concrete solutions that can help us. I think that's a really good way to start this off. And, and and May, I mean, what are your thoughts? How do we move from, you know, all kinds of policy papers and studies over the past number of years on, on housing and housing supply to actually getting shovels in the ground and, and in an affordable fashion? Yeah, well, I can just speak from what um, 
I've kind of observed just as a reporter. Um, yeah, I feel like there's kind of two camps when we're talking about how to how to increase um, housing affordability. There's the people who kind of want to build, 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 and make it easier to build um, and get more supply. And then there's others who are more focused on, I guess, um, okay. rent controls and things like that and, and building more purpose-built rental housing um, and increasing that supply. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it kind of goes with Mayor Chow because she has indicated during the campaign that she wants to get back into the business of building, you know, rental housing. Um, and she's spoken a little bit about that since um, she became elected with uh, her housing plan. Um, so that'll be really interesting to watch. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's interesting because right now, as we know in Toronto, rents are super high and housing prices are, are quite high. They've gone down a little bit, but they are still quite high for most people. And a lot of people are unable to afford to buy homes. Um, but it's a really tricky question. Like if if prices start to go down too much and that's a lot of people's retirements and, and um, interest rates are impacting all of it. So it's a, it's a really interesting space to watch. Yeah, I think that's a really important point around price and and, and high rents as well. And and, and Mike, I'll, I'll I'll turn to your uh, point of view. But certainly, it's one thing to say, "Hey, we're going to build a bunch of housing," but it's another thing to bring it online at a at a price point that's affordable, whether you're talking about renting or buying. So, from a you know a past city councillor's per perspective, and someone that's lived in the in in the city of Toronto for a long time and sort of grappled with these issues, I mean, how do you bridge that gap between simply building housing and, and bringing it on affordably? Well, I think you captured it right there, Jason, to, to, to May's point, there's those that believe it's about supply and those that that believe it's about what you're building and 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 how it's being administered. And it's it's both. Right. Like I, I often I don't think anyone's going to be surprised. I, I subscribe to the latter camp that I think that the state has a significant role in providing affordable housing. But at the same time, I'm an urban planner. Like I, I, I know that. Uh, at least I'm educated as an urban planner. I've spent enough times in activism and advocacy that I probably have, have given in that uh, that 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 card. Uh, but um, it's about doing both, and and I think I think Mayor Chow, which is very odd for me to say, I want to call her OC. So if I do by mistake, you'll forgive me. Um, the uh, but Mayor Chow did did that in in her appointment of who's on uh, who's on the planning committee. Think about it, right, Councillor Perks not known as being a neoliberal market-driven thinker, uh, to put it mildly, and frankly, I agree with his positions on on, on many things, um, as the chair, but then who's the vice chair? We have Brad Bradford, someone who through the election and prior to that is very much geared to that market mechanism for providing housing. So I think right there, she signaled that it's both are important to her, both, both, um, uh, driving and 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 speeding up the approval of sites and that may involve hiring new planning staff i don't think you talk to a developer in the city that doesn't sing the praises of toronto planning staff and at the same time say we just wish we got our reports back a little faster so advance um advance those applications faster so that our market housing is addressed because the, the shortage isn't just in 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 low-income housing it is but it's also at the market level. So get those houses built as fast as you can, bring some certainty to the industry so that the interest rates don't have as much of an impact. They're like, of course, always gonna have an impact, but have as much of an impact and perhaps even encourage a, um, a rental housing in that way. And then on the other side, 
change, get away from the business as usual model that's just relying on the private sector to do our building and provide our housing for us. We're never going to get to that 80,000 person list, a backlog of, uh, or, or wait list for affordable housing by getting 100, 100 units here and 100 units there. It's going to be through a sustained investment from every level of government. And that's, that is, is what's going to help us with the refugee crisis, with the homelessness crisis, maybe even with some of the deeper issues around healthcare. Like that, that at its core is going to help us out of some of the enormous other crises we have as a society. Yeah, and, and I think that's a good point to end off on is that, you know, they're, they're, they're in, in any file, I think that's going to be dealt with at the City of Toronto, there's room for collaboration with with the other levels of, of, of government as well. And, you know, I'm going to turn to, you know, some of that collaboration in a little bit, but I want to sort of stay on that affordability uh, theme and sort of thinking about households, because on the one hand, we've talked about high rents, we've talked about um, high home prices and how that feeds through into, into mortgage payments. Of course, you know, another big part of of any household's balance sheet um, yeah. is taxation. Um, and, and obviously that's top of mind when we're thinking about, you know, the city of Toronto, but other levels of government as well are in a bit of a pinch, certainly from a, from a financial perspective. And, you know, recently councillors passed a, a, a measure to, to increase the municipal land transfer tax rates for, for homes valued at more than $3 million. Um, and, and, you know, that's set to come into place on, on January 1st. Um, and I'm curious what, what your thoughts are, I guess, overall, on the LTT and 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 the fact that it's proven not necessarily to be a sustainable revenue source at, at the ebb and flow of the of the housing market, but also um, your thoughts on sort of uh, um, you know increasing the 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 threshold on one side, whereas on the other side of the equation we haven't seen much movement um, in in terms of, of first time buyers and uh, and where they may be accepted from paying uh, land transfer tax. Um, who should we start with now? Let's start with May. Yeah, it was really interesting to see that um, the land transfer tax um, on the over $3 million homes. And um, yeah, I've seen it also in, in other jurisdictions. Like I think LA has one, but it's over, I think, five and $10 million homes. And it's sometimes referred to as a mansion tax there. Um, but I think in, in Toronto, although th over $3 million is a, a high price point, it's not necessarily a huge sprawling mansion because of how expensive um, things are right now. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see the public perception of that. I think the idea is that people who can afford homes that cost that much can afford to pay a little bit more. Um, and that's the idea of it. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's definitely something that I don't know we would have seen from, from the last administration from Mayor Tory. Um, and, and we'll see how that how that goes, I guess. Yeah, it's an interesting point about the price level because certainly, you know, in in the in the city of Toronto, if you're just trying to purchase a home or you're in another city outside of Toronto that may not be as expensive, you know, three million dollars seems like a a very high number. But you know, it could also be that over the last ten to fifteen years, you have a household that's kind of moved their way through the the housing market. They bought a condo, then they bought a semi, then they bought a detached, and now they want to buy something a little bit bigger. They've been able to parlay those equity gains and what have you into the into that purchase. But it's not necessarily a they're you know rich or, or wealthy people they've been able to sort of progress through that through the housing market um over time and so you know thinking about that you know mike layton what are your thoughts on on i guess the ltt as a revenue tool it's been around a long time now but also um you know focusing in on you know this high end of the market when we haven't you know had as much discussion um you know for first-time buyers coming in and what the impact of the ltt is on them 
Well, listen, I, I like I was part of the budget committee for many years. We had lots of discussions about revenue tools. I put forward a motion on my way out the door to make sure that this next council got a, dis, a, a honest discussion about revenue tools right at the outset. Now, it didn't happen, and it took Mayor Chow coming in to, to get that report to council. But um, you're, like I've, I've long believed that while, while the a land transfer tax is an unsustainable tax and it shouldn't be we should not be so reliant for it on our operations budget given the tools we have as a city it is one of the more reliable ones to bring in the dollars that we need to operate the city uh the the to trans what we pull in on the land transfer tax as a city to the property tax would be I like I, some some would at Trev must have this calculation, but it's probably somewhere in the in the range of a forty five percent tax increase, I don't know, give or take a couple million uh, or a couple percent. Um, so it, perhaps it's not appropriate to bake it into the operational budget and be so reliant on it, but certainly it should be looked at as a tool to fund capital expenditure to address uh, address uh, a state of good repair or some of those. Uh, some of those elements. It could. There are better tools. Land transfer tax isn't inherently progressive. However, the addition of the mansion tax of the of of the 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 LTT or um, uh, properties of three million does help to address that that progressiveness of the tax. Because generally speaking, it's it's paid on the on the point of purchase. So the people purchasing the properties when they're buying a three million dollar home aren't the same. Have a higher household income. Generally speaking, I would suspect. Than someone purchasing a house or a condo at the $700, $800 million price point, which is the lower end of the price point, sadly, in the market that we're in. Um, so while I, I I don't see it being the ideal tool, and there are better ones, and council isn't looking at them, um, this one is one of the tools in the box. I'd liken it to saying, I wish I had, I wish I had a, a an electric circular saw in my toolbox, but all I have is this cruddy handsaw. And you know what? I've got to saw that wood. So you've got to figure out how to make it work uh, either way. This also, I, I would I, I would say this was being discussed under Mayor Tory. While it never, I don't believe it ended up getting voted on, it had widespread support. I was part of those, those vote counts. It was, if it would have succeeded, if not for a handful in the administration saying, we will, we don't want to pursue with this at this point in time. Um, I am quite convinced it would have advanced on other occasions. I believe we did have one vote on it uh, uh, early on in, in the 2018 to the to 2022 term, but it did have a lot of support. Steve, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's, it's a longstanding debate, and I think both me and, and, and Mike have raised good points uh, about the tax, both the fors and, and, and against. Where do you stand on it? So, uh, look, I, I think Mike hit the nail on the head. It, it's required revenue, unfortunately, to help balance the budget, because by law, you have to balance the budget yep. if you're a municipality. I think going back eight or so years, too much reliance has always been put on the land transfer tax because there are no other revenue tools to try to bring money in. If we are going to ensure, if we are going to keep the land transfer tax, I think, though, we need to do more for first time home buyers. I think the thresholds for the first time home buyer rebate really need to be looked at seriously as costs of condos and homes have gone up. So if we are going to 
have the land transfer tax. And I totally understand why. And uh, I mean, look, I, I was fortunate enough to purchase a home with my wife uh, about seven years ago. And so we paid provincial and municipal land transfer tax. I'm not going to I'm not going to cry and complain that I paid it because that was seven years ago. And I'm thankful and fortunate that I could. But let's see what we can do for first time, what more we can do for first time home buyers who I'm going to make the assumption are not in the three, four, five, six million dollar range for the purchases. If a first time home buyer can buy a five million dollar property, that's a different discussion. But I'd like to see more done by this council to assist the entry level purchasers in the condo and housing market. But I also need to say, this will not solve the affordability uh, issues facing Toronto. Let's not conflate ownership of purchase and ownership of property equaling ending a housing supply issue. The last one, you were early uh, in your question, you asked about property taxes. We need to look at property taxes. It's not, do I want to pay more? It's not, what better services will I get for the dollars? It's really... What is the range? How is it going to be implemented? And is it thoughtful? And no one wants to pay more taxes. No one's going to stand up and say, please, please let me pay $100,000 more a year to the government, etc. But, you know, Mayor Chow and her campaign and Progress Toronto, the left and, and the center, were compassionate. They are compassionate. We are a compassionate people in Toronto, I firmly believe that. And maybe I'm too close to Rosh Hashanah right now in the Jewish holidays, but we wanna help each other. And if there, if we see the results of helping, I think we're all in favor. It's how much more and how it's implemented and is it equitable? Yeah, I mean, great segue. I appreciate that because uh, that was my next topic that I wanted to, to hit was 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 property tax, and I think you know that was another um, issue that was discussed recently um, at council was this notion that you know we want to see or council wants to see uh, uh, property taxes more in line with what you're seeing in some of the municipalities uh, surrounding the city of Toronto. And I guess on the one hand, um, you know, you'll have a cohort of the population that says, "Look, it's about time." Um, you know, if we'd only seen taxes increase by, you know, inflation every year over the last two decades, we'd be in less of a hole than we are today. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have a, a decent sized cohort of people that are saying, you know what, we should be seeing more and more efficiencies from the city and we should be able to see our, 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 our tax burden uh, uh, reduce. And so, um, you know, Steve, you've already had a lot to say around uh, uh, property tax. So maybe, Mike, I'll turn to you first. Well, sure. I just say if we want to have any credibility when we go to the other levels of government, we better be sure that we're using space within what we can tax uh, before we start asking for it. I, I, like, I've been saying that for years. I think I, a minority of councillors have been saying that over the last two terms. Um, there, I think if you add up the tax increases that I supported at council, they were quite significant. And that was because there, there was room there. And other governments... And, and like like I've heard this multiple times from both uh, both colleagues on the provincial and federal government that have said, look, once you're taxing to the rate of your neighbors, then you can start talking to us about asking for more resources. Until then, like you 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 are not putting that burden of taxing more on us. And and so I think it like we've got to we've got to make an important decision. Do we want to have credibility when we're dealing with those levels of government, or do we want to just go and say uh, continue to help us keep? Toronto property taxes 
lower than our neighbors. I say that carefully because they're not low, uh, but lower than our neighbors um, in, in the immediate areas. Uh, we can't expect to have great services at, without without paying for them. And, and I think that that's one fundamental thing that Mayor Chow is trying to demonstrate through this is that she, she's not afraid to have the difficult conversations, make the hard decisions, because that's what it takes if you want an invitation to the other levels of government to make requests for uh, uh, for additional resources. I will add, though, that this multi-year approach is, I think, what's brilliant about it all. And we've been talking about this for years. Um, David Miller, in his time, when they separated out the uh, the rate-supported budgets from the uh, tax-supported budget, so this is your water bill, um, they knew that, that we were paying, uh, and we weren't charging enough for water. But rather give the what would have been a hundred percent, sorry, thousand percent increase. I think the number works out to a uh, hundred because it was ten times. Sorry, that's a better way to describe it. That is a ten times increase. They said we're going to do nine over nine, nine percent increase over nine years. They got complaints the first year. I wasn't there, but I heard. But but just a couple years later, we stopped getting calls. That nine percent was still there. It phased out over time. But their 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 tact on this was to communicate it well out of the gate uh, and have people expect to see it. And there's no no surprises that uh, there's there's no surprises on their part. Um, but I think that that's the approach that that people will respect and and including and most importantly those other levels of government. Yeah, and the timing could very well be important. You're right, because in, in the sense that, you know, in, in the early days, there there certainly would be a lot of complaining about, you know, the property tax rate um, increasing. But if people saw uh, um, a, an increase in their services and an increase in their quality of life as a result, then, you know, probably the complaints diminish over time. May, what are your thoughts on that sort of debate around, you know, a more sustainable increase in uh, in property taxes over time? Yeah, as you were uh, saying earlier, Jason, I think you there are kind of two different camps or um, one camp, and we even hear councillors talking about that at the special council meeting, the idea of trimming, cutting services that will impact things like library, libraries or TTC, things like that. Um, so I think it's just a choice that they're going to have to make as a council and, and Mayor Chow will have to make it as well to, um, you know, look for other ways rather than, than cutting, which may or may not be popular, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. And I, I want to shift gears a little bit again. I mean, we've talked about, you know, and, and I'm sure I think everyone's in agreement uh, on the housing supply side of things that we need to see more. And, and at the same time, it needs to be affordable because, you know, there are a lot of demands on the average household's balance sheet. But I want to think more about sort of housing type, right? Because we talk a lot about housing supply in the aggregate. Um, but there's also a notion that we don't necessarily have uh, the appropriate continuum of housing, at least in all neighborhoods within the, the city of Toronto. And so, you know, thinking about a, affordable housing generally, um, I think, you know, one important component of that is that people can move into different types of housing over time as their situation dictates. And so we've talked a lot about in the last number of years about this notion of, you know, gentle density or or missing middle housing. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense for a lot of neighborhoods throughout the city. But is that the solution given the, the housing supply deficit that we've seen build up? I'm sure it's part of it. Um, but, you know, is there is there room for uh, um, also larger scale developments to come online that may need, you know, the support of, of different levels of government? And may, maybe I'll start with you. 
Yeah, and I think it's a good point, um, Jason, as you said there, you know, in this city, we are lacking certain types of housing, I think it's fair to say, you know, we have a lot of condos, which do provide um, some rental housing for, for people, but the prices are quite high even to rent, but we don't have a lot of purpose-built rental um, buildings, and the, some of the build, older buildings that we, we know of are even being torn down for condos or, or things like that, um, so we are kind of lacking in that area, and I think, you know, being a millennial, I see a lot of, you know, friends and, and colleagues who are like, working good jobs and trying to save up for a first home and, you know, renting, but having that precarity of renting a condo where they might be kicked out of or something like that. So I think there is definitely um, a deficit on, on that end. Um, and yeah, we'll see kind of what Mayor Chow does in that space. Steve, what are your thoughts on sort of the scale of development that, that's uh, that, that's required? Because I think, you know, one criticism of the missing middle sort of approach is that, you know, it, it won't get us enough fast enough. Well, maybe my opinion to me a bit jaundiced and uh, I, I was fortunate to have uh, Mike as my counselor for a number of years. So if you look at DuPont Street and you look at Bloor Street from, let's just say, Avenue to Christie, there's a lot of development going on. Yeah you're always going to get NIMBYs saying, no, 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 not in my neighborhood. I think we need to have all types being built. We need the purpose-built rental. Yes, we need the condos. People want to buy condos, but we need them intermixed. We can't just allow a 25-story building to go up without real rent geared to income, and which is really affordable, not a $5,000 a month rent that's now going for $4,000 so that we can show that's a bit less. I think we need more laneway suites, the whole gamut of stuff. I have a couple of laneway streets right around me. It's amazing. So Jason, I mean, yes, we, we're going to have more development built. We need all types of development, but we also need to find a way to have some of the community voices not quieted down. They're very important, but maybe toned down a bit to allow different types of building to take place around the corner from all of us rather than just in this pocket or that pocket um, as we're seeing at times. And Mike, maybe we could focus in a little bit more on on this sort of NIMBY issue that uh, that Steve raised. You know, a, a couple of years ago, uh, Treb had urban strategies uh, um, in, in Toronto undertake sort of a study or environmental scan, if you will, saying, you know, answering the question, you know, what is the missing middle and, and what could it look like in, in different parts of the city and different parts of the GTA? Um, you know, and how does it look in other centers around the world? What are the best practices? And and the thing that always struck me and still strikes me today when I look through that report is how cool a lot of these, you know, housing options are and, and, and how great they look and how they'd augment you know, a lot of our older and more traditional neighborhoods, um, you know, throughout the city. And so it always leaves me thinking that it, it's, you know, the, the the NIMBY issue, not in my neighborhood, not in my backyard, could be combated really well, just with a little bit better education on what the art of the possible is. You know, it's funny, if you asked me 10 years ago, um, what, how, how would you solve this problem? It would have been, like, focus on the big sites, because infill housing in general bid rise is harder than the tall buildings getting approved from a from a community now i can tell you that like we did a lot of work around mervish village but we had all the all the residents associations 
in support at the end of the day, which is no small feat. I, I, I take that as, as as a huge accomplishment. But even some of the the, the tall buildings east of, uh, of of Bathurst, you'll see less opposition at those public meetings, despite the fact that it's 50 times, 100 times, some cases, maybe 500 times the amount of housing uh, on one on one site, the same size as the the duplex trying to turn into a fourplex that has a day long uh, meeting at the committee of adjustment. Um, that there's not, there's something wrong with that, but but I think actually, uh, like May raised a good point. There's there's the change in in perception and why government didn't follow um, the industry into this when they started talking about addressing the missing middle and looking for infill housing specifically. Um, which I think the, the government largely followed the movement towards sort of mid-rise -ride, buildings from either tall buildings or, or single-family homes. Yeah. What, what's happened is people care. Like, like there's, there are more millennials now and parents of millennials that are saying, hey, wait a second, where are our kids going to live? Where are they going to have grandkids? Um, they're like, I don't want them to move to Hamilton. I want them to stay in Toronto. Nothing wrong with Hamilton. But... Um, I think there's more, more and more the, the public opinion dial is shifting. Uh, and frankly, when you hear community associations talk about it now, they're talking more about the affordability angle. But here's where you got to get really like you got to be really careful is um, we had a big uh, there was a big concern about the loss of rental housing with the demolition of a, like a 15 store. Right, rental building on St. George, where the community, the, the people living in the building were concerned about losing their houses. Despite the fact that they have a right to return, they, they they would have been displaced from their housing to who knows where for for a long time. There's you can't overcome that. You can, and we have in, in a lot of respects. There the the city negotiates negotiates good packages for relocation, for rent supplements, all of the above. the The challenge there is um, it's tough to say you're going to be okay to someone that's about to find out they're going to lose their house and not going to know where they're going to live. And not going to know how they're going to get their kids to their kids' school. What are they going to tell their kid? Like there's 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 that human factor that's really hard to overcome. Same way, if my neighbor built a laneway suite, and I've looked for my own house, there's a third problem is financing for people that have large mortgages uh, for the infill housing. But um, but if my neighbor put out an infill suite, what are my tomatoes going to do? And yes, <laughs> that's a problem for me. But then I look at my kids and say. We're going to try to have a laneway suite for you because I don't know where you're going to live in 15 years. Um, so I think that there's, there, there, generally speaking, we got to find place, places for both projects, for those tall projects to get approvals quickly to include real affordable housing, but then at the same time to get communities together around, around common goals of building neighborhoods that can be uh, multi-generational, that, 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 that people can grow up in and, and stay in after the fact. And that's going to happen through some kind of infill. You know, my, my neighborhood, uh, uh, Steve, Stephen's neighborhood for sure, we've actually lost density because our, our, tri our duplexes and triplexes that were built for immigrant families as they came over and supported each other, they've largely been returned to single family homes. Um, and so all of a sudden, um, we're, we're, we, we have a loss of those spaces that I lived in when I was in university that I got when I got out of university, you can barely find one now in the neighborhood because uh, those duplexes, those those nice basement apartments are starting to disappear. And so we've, we've got to address it on both sides of the spectrum.
And Mike, I want to stick with you for a minute because you know, you mentioned a lot in your in in your last response around you know the generational issue, and so concern you know parents concern that their kids aren't going to be able to find an affordable place to live within the city of Toronto. Concern they might move away. I think another generational concern is is the impact of of, of climate change and, and sustainability, which is your bailiwick. Um, and, and sort of thinking about housing on the one side, buildings, houses, homes, commercial structures, and what have you, they contribute to greenhouse gases, but they're also impacted by uh, climate change as well. You know, think about wind damage, flooding, fire damage, and what have you. A as we move forward, what, what's the, the, the new administration with oh, the city yeah. of Toronto, um, and, 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 and how are they going to also work with other levels of government on, on you know, climate change issues, and, and particularly drilling down to the impact on housing? Well, I think that the, the, the big items uh, haven't changed as far as uh, cutting our greenhouse gases. Um, we need to stop using natural gas to, uh, to, heat, to heat our homes. Uh, we, we immediately need to stop. The, the key to that is getting off of that technology and that fuel source as quickly as we can. It's going to be a transition. It's not going to happen tomorrow. We need to upgrade our electricity network as we, um, as we transition uh, our, our existing building stock uh, and, and, and take offline some of the, those technologies. But at the same time, there needs to be a moment where we say we will not provide any new gas connections. They're just that needs to happen and needs to happen soon. That's the reality. In much the same way that we need to say we will not sell any more gasoline-powered cars. Like that, that is a, a point in time that I think is fixed by the federal government. But those are two core things that need to happen in our uh, for for our city to meet our climate target. Um, the bigger question I think is how are we ensuring that the most marginalized are um, are taken care of as the climate changes and as we are forced to adapt to the new climate because it will it is changing and it will 2023 the summer hottest one on record um, record forest fires all across Canada we don't have to relive the smoke in the city to, to know that the second one is how are we going to take advantage of this for our economic advancement are we going to get the jobs that will result in us being a player in the next in in the low carbon economy or are we going to let that pass by that's not a problem for toronto to fix there are some things we can do but no. we need support from other levels of government and that means certainty in our climate policy that means certainty in our industrial policy as it as it relates to uh to green energy and to the to the to the low carbon transition um we're not getting that now from our existing governments, right? From 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 the parties that are fighting it out at both other levels. We're not getting that certainty. They're not agreeing on a course, and they need to if we're going to get the get the benefits uh, as we transition, uh, because we we will need to uh, eventually. Some generation is going to figure out that this is this is this is do or die for a species. Um, I'm hopeful it's ours. Uh, but uh, getting less and less confident as, uh, as the generations go by. So transportation and cutting gas out of our heating for buildings. I think that's a really important point, sort of mating the, you know, the, the need for, you know, more sustainable development, but, but also that, that, that can lead to uh, a change in, in economic development and, and where we see economic growth moving forward. May, what are your thoughts, you know, thinking about, you know, housing, which you've covered for a long time, um, you know, how do you sort of juxtapose the two climate change versus housing and, and what can be done at the, at the local level? Yeah, I would just echo a lot of um, Mike's points and, and he's kind of the expert here, but something interesting that we found when we we're 
um, covering housing and the issue of um, even older office buildings, you know, being potentially converted to housing, which is an issue that's being discussed, I think, across North America right now, um, is just the idea that a lot of the, the newer builds and the condos have a carbon footprint that comes with them. So I think that's interesting to look at as well and remember um, that it's not without a cost, all of these, these new builds. I don't know what the answer is to that, but I thought it was a really interesting point that came up during some of that reporting. Yeah, it's true. It's a balancing act. You know, what are your thoughts, Steve, on sort of balancing that from a from a public policy perspective? Like on the one hand, we you know we we could say, look, we want to get as many houses in, uh, uh, on the ground as 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 quickly as possible, and that could preclude you know us doing it in the most sustainable fashion. Uh, but then there's a cost in the long term. What are your thoughts? So there's new technologies being developed around the world every day, and I'm not an expert in all the environmentally friendly technologies that are out there. But to be successful, you need to have an education campaign to prove why we should do something. And then we need to, and I hate to bring economics into it, we need to encourage developers to act in a certain way, to build with the new technologies. That is things that the city can control in some ways, maybe through development fees and other charges and whatnot, in that if you do A, we will assist you with B. We have to just start. And, and you know, I loved what Mike said about new homes without, uh, without natural gas. I was smiling because, well, my home right now will be fine. I have a gas stove and, and a gas furnace. But there's flippancy, but then there's serious. Yeah. There are benefits out there and there are programs to modernize my furnace, to modernize other things. If those are also looked at differently to encourage me, the consumer, to modernize in a more environmentally friendly way, that's how you're gonna get me to do it. So we just need to expand the scale and scope of it. And the current housing needs are so great that there is the opportunity on a project by project basis to encourage more sustainable uh, facilities, buildings, products, tools, tips, tricks, etc. You know. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you would never have thought that a condo would be built with not at least one parking spot per unit. There are condos built across Toronto right now with a third, maybe half parking spots and proper bike lockers and things like that. When I started my work in municipal, it was give me more car spaces. Who cares about bikes? Um, and we've seen the shift from that. So I'm encouraged that we baby steps, maybe we can take some giant steps with education and government support to do it. And you mentioned that kind of carrot and stick and that give and take between different levels of governance, Steve, and, that, and that's where I want to uh, turn now. Um, just sort of thinking about, you know, um, where do all of you think, I guess, the the the, the the easiest relationship and quickest relationships would, would be to sort of foster, to see more housing get on the ground, to see a more, you know, sustainable development um, as we move forward. And 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 maybe um, a, a second part, I mean, we've seen a change of the guard, if you will, in, in the Ministry of Housing at the provincial level with the new minister, Paul Calandra, um, you know, coming and, and taking on the file recently. Um, how do you see things changing, you know, from a month ago compared to now? And, and, and May, maybe I'll start with you. 
Yeah, well, I think as um, some of the other panelists has mentioned, um, Mayor Chow so far had a kind of signaled a coll more collaborative approach um, and working with other levels of government. Um, so I know that the new housing minister hasn't been around for too long, um, but we'll see kind of how that that relationship evolves um, and how that government kind of deals with the um, lingering impacts of the, the Greenbelt um, scandal and, and where that goes. Mike, what are your thoughts on on that sort of collaboration? We talked about it at the outset. It was one of the um, you know first points that you made. There's more collaboration at the city. Uh, I think there's room for more collaboration across you know all levels of government. Where do you think that ought to start? Well, listen, I got no love lost for Steve Clark. Uh, Steve Clark taking a taking a walk, like for two reasons. One, this Greenbelt stuff. It. I, I'm sorry to say it's 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 problem. Like at at the at the very least. But then, uh, in addition to that, like we're talking the 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 government and I, I the 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 ministry that uh, that severely curtailed the democracy in uh, city of Toronto elections not too long ago. So, uh, like I think you got to look at those and, and say, like perhaps this is a good time for us to hit reset on that relationship. Uh, people want to see action and and collaboration amongst the level of government at levels of government. I think Olivia uh, Mayor Chow has demonstrated. That she's able to do that um, with Premier Premier Ford, um, they've just got to find and pick their moments, right? They're not going to see eye to eye on everything, um, but I think there are moments that they can pick and strategies that can take that can drive them forward. When I was working with um, uh, with uh, then Councillor Ford and, and Mayor Ford, like if you found the angle where you could work with them, like they quite aggressively helped you. Uh, I wor worked with them on a number of climate initiatives and some housing ones, and and you know what? Uh, I think they'll be able to find that common ground. The bigger issue is uh, not to let politics get in the way, right? Like not to let the the bravado, not to let the what's going on at the federal level of government, what's going on uh, at at uh, in one ministry at at Ontario Place over others. Like isolate your issues, work together with you can, and then clash and have that public debate where you can too, because it's a democracy and that's a healthy thing. Um, but but certainly, I think finding opportunities to work together with the hit of the reset button and a new minister, maybe we have that opportunity that we might not have had uh, if the, uh, the the cloud of the green belt kept hanging over the head of the uh, of the provincial government. So, Steve, I mean, you know, from 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 Mike's standpoint, uh, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot of opportunity for 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 collaboration, and as you said, there, there's a bit of been a bit of a reset, at least at the at the provincial level. How do you find that balance between you know collaborating and 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 getting work done, um, you know, versus you know looking like there's too much heavy handedness from a from a senior level of government? Look, <clears throat> mayors and premiers and mayors and prime ministers agree when it suits the purpose to and disagree when it doesn't. Um, very simply, it requires leadership. It requires walking up University Avenue or going to Ottawa and talking and getting things done. We have seen it happen with the refugee issue. We've seen it happen with some other things. We also have to remember one key thing in the federal provincial municipal dynamic. When it suits the purposes of the government of Canada to team up with the, with the mayor against the premier, they will do so. When it serves the purpose of the government of Ontario to team up with the mayor against the prime minister, they will do so. And when it serves the purpose of the prime minister and the premier to team up against the mayor, they will do that. Toronto, unfortunately, is a ping pong ball at times that is used for other people to other people and to exploit other weaknesses. 
the advantage we have is that the current mayor was a member of parliament, worked very well across all aisles of all parties to get things done. The current mayor did this as a school board trustee, as a councillor, as an MP. I have no reason to believe that it won't continue as, as mayor. But as I say, we have to remember that the province and the feds want to put and make enemies with different levels of government to suit their purposes. The biggest challenge that Mayor Chow will have is seeing the landmine two, three, four kilometers out and make sure we don't get hit by it in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, and it's been a common thread going through you know, our, our whole discussion today is that there is a need for collaboration, whether it's across one level of government or or, or between, you know, two or three. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there's questions I haven't asked today that that that, that would hit issues that, that you all feel are important as we move forward in, in the city of Toronto and even more broadly um, into the GTA. And so um, like a good interview, I want to ask, you know, is there anything else you'd like to add um, in, in, in concluding thoughts and, and maybe uh, uh, Mike Layton, I'll start with you. Well, you know what, I think it's just, I, we've got to look at the long-term goals here. And if it's to try to continue to build a great city, if it's going to, tr if it's going to try to address some of the crises that we're facing a, as a city, uh, the climate crisis, the homelessness crisis, the, the, uh, the, the housing crisis, affordability crisis, and the opioid crisis, like just to name five major crises that are people are dying as a result on our streets. Um, I, I would say that the business as usual isn't gonna isn't gonna fly anymore. Status quo needs to be re-examined, whether or not it's in our housing, where like I think I think in some ways we're we're taking those steps, looking at um looking at uh, uh, different ways of providing for infill housing and changing like like really fundamentally changing some of those approval processes is is helpful. We're at the beginning of that, but but we're having conversations I wouldn't have dreamt of ten years ago. Uh, on the, on the climate crisis, I think we're 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 kind of at that defining moment. In that in in twenty twenty three, the years are only going to get hotter. This won't be the record one for long, I suspect. Um, but we got to make a decision whether or not we're going to forget about the the cloud of 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 smoke that covered our city for for a month. Um, or are we actually going to take the rather reasonable steps and transitioning to technologies that we've known about for years and some, some newer ones come along and start making that shift? Or are we going to let our own uh, uh, personal reservations uh, about, about things get in, get in the way, both on housing and climate? With um, that, Then you look and where we've seen some advancement, despite the fact that the numbers haven't entirely backed it up, is around new approaches that we probably wouldn't have uh, accepted as a society for addressing opioid addiction. We're talking about safe supply and 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 safe consumption. Like these are things that ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I know because I was on the board of health eight years ago. Like they they were still there were some reservations uh, going down those paths, despite the fact that the science behind it was pretty clear. We needed to go down that road. We didn't get there fast enough. We're not keeping up the pace we need to. Uh, but it's that kind of bold thinking ideas that 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 we we need right now and in a major major way and i think that that part of that is a reflection of olivia's successful uh campaign uh and then part of that is is a reflection in the general shift society is having uh in in some of the attitudes towards uh, uh towards this uh, stephen was saying uh he'd love to transition uh his home from a gas a house using gas to to one that's not we did that recently using some of these same funding programs 
Uh, and and more and more, I'm going to stop on the street, literally stopped on the street to say, Mike, I gotta ask you, where'd you get your heat pump? And and this is like a regular occurrence in my life. So so much so that my my heat pump installer is pretty happy with the referrals that he's getting from me. Uh, so I'm glad I'm not elect I'm not an elected official, or else I couldn't give those referrals. But uh, I would just say we need that type of bold thinking. Uh, I think our city deserves it, and I think it's ready for it. Well, Steve Adler, how are you now? Are you going to get rid of your gas stove? Um, so not right now, uh, but Mike and I will probably talk in the neighborhood. We'll run into each other, and I will invite myself over to see uh, his new heat pump. Um, look, uh, my late father always said that you're born with two ears and one mouth, and the job is to listen and then speak. And so what I'm hoping happens over the next little while is, and continues throughout the term, is that the mayor continues to listen to people who agree with her and people who don't agree with her. She has a career of, of doing so. And then leadership is about making the tough decisions and doing it. And so what we'll really see over the next year or so is as tough decisions are being made, does the do Torontonians support the tough decisions? And does the key base, the 37% of the voters who voted, um, I believe that was the number, um, continue to support? If the answer is that the base is happy, feels listened to, and appro approves of the direction, then everything will be fine. If the base starts to buckle a bit or, or if Torontonians suddenly don't like the direction, then it will be a different discussion. Um, I don't envy the mayor and the city manager and the executive committee. They have some tough decisions to make on the fiscal and financial future of our city. We can't just continue based on property taxes, land transfer taxes, et cetera. We need some new thinking to be able to do long-term planning. And so uh, I just wish them luck in the tough decisions and I hope they make the tough decisions. That's the other key part. May both both Stephen and Mike, you know, it, it's true. They mentioned that there's a lot of you know tough issues to be dealt with, and and it'll certainly test this council as we move forward. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, I would just say, um, you know, we've we've talked here about some potential solutions and different debates that council is going to have to have, but I would just kind of underscore the urgency of, you know, taking action on the on this housing crisis. Um, you know, we've got. People um, who don't have homes at all, sleeping on the streets. Okay, we're seeing the impacts of that, um, which is obviously awful. But, you know, also young people are leaving the city. We're starting to see that now. People going to other provinces um, just because they can't make the numbers work, even working pretty good jobs. Um, so I think we need to, you know, take it really seriously and, and realize that if we don't, you know, take some kind of action on this, we're going to be changing this, who we are as a city and really losing um, some great people. Well, thank you very much. And I'd like to thank all three of you, Stephen Adler, Mike Layton, and May Warren for sharing your views on, on the, the initial plans outlined by our new mayor and council and, and really where we need to head moving forward, both from a, a, a housing supply perspective an affordability perspective and, and, a, and a sustainability perspective. So I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on the, the podcast. And I know our listeners will, will really enjoy it. And make sure you don't miss another episode. Subscribe to Treb's Ready to Real Estate podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you again next time. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B dot C-A to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate. Thanks for tuning in.